0: Hey there, friends. It's Eddie, host of The New Activist. You are listening, or about to listen to, a re-released episode from Season 1, our first episode season, obviously. That's why we named it one of the new activist. We are putting these out as we are preparing for season three, which will be awesome. I'm excited for you to hear it. As a quick reminder, if you would please go to newactivist.is forward slash IJM and fill out that form. It is not a, you don't need to give money or anything. Just fill out this form. It will send a letter to elected officials and it will be very helpful, not only in the work of IJM, but also in supporting this podcast. Thanks for doing that. Enjoy this episode. What time is it there? Is that what everybody asks? It is 11 o'clock and yes. (laughs) Yes, everybody's unable to just do simple math or check Google, so they just ask you the time. (laughs) This is Jeremy Courtney. He is the CEO of Preemptive Love Coalition, and he is in Iraq, a fact that apparently I am quite tickled by. He is our guest both this week and next week as we end season one with a special two-part conversation. This is The New Activist. Well, this is indeed The New Activist, episode 12 with Jeremy Courtney. My name is Eddie. I am one of the hosts of this show, and what an honor it is to be here and to be a part of this conversation with you. You know, I recorded this episode back in September, actually the day that The New Activist launched, and uh, I had a miserable cold. You're going to hear me. I sound real real nasally, and I had to edit out a lot of my coughing. But um, I was totally sick, and I was nervous about the show starting, but I was so excited because I knew that a conversation that was starting that day was going to end with this conversation with Jeremy. Jeremy and I have been friends for a while and have had many opportunities to sit down and chat and have good meals together and in a lot of ways his activism story is what inspired this show. Not Jeremy in particular but more hearing his story over these lunches and hearing how he went from a a kid that grew up in Texas to a guy that is living with his family in Iraq and doing some incredible work you're going to hear about it in a moment, Uh, I I was just enthralled by that person. And so uh, here he is. We're going to hear from Jeremy. We also put it at this time of year because we are shopping for the holidays, and I wanted you to know, before anything else, that if you go to preemptivelove.org, preemptivelove.org, and click on gift catalog, it's right there at the top, and you can buy gifts for people that were made by individuals who are refugees, and the stuff that they made is just Beautiful. They have these candles, these beautiful sisterhood candles that I love. They've got this really delicately painted um, exterior, these votive candles. They've got this Kingsman charcoal soap. It's amazing stuff. So definitely buy that if you are still in need of some gifts for folks. Well, with no further ado, here is my conversation with Jeremy Courtney. Jeremy, Courtney, my friend, um, I feel like I have to start with a really on-the-nose question, which I hate asking, but um, I, I, I think it's helpful for you to explain it. What is preemptive love, and what do you do?
1: Yeah, so um, I'll give you the, the very concrete answer and then maybe a slightly more esoteric answer. The, the very concrete answer is we are a humanitarian aid and development organization working in conflict zones around the world. One way we've been saying it recently is we're the first to go in and the last to say goodbye. Um, what we mean by that is we're, we're really trying to get to the edges of places where people are running away from violence uh, in desperate need of emergency supplies like food and water, fleeing groups like ISIS. Um, so in that way, we're the first to go in but we stick around. We're not just an aid organization. Uh, we're not off to the next thing. We're not chasing chaos around the world. We really want to work with communities and help see them back to a place of flourishing. And so in that way, we move and help people turn the corner from aid to economic development uh, and we stick around. We're we're trying to put kids back in school. We're trying to get people back on their feet, trying to create jobs. And so in that way, we're the last to say goodbye. In a slightly more esoteric way of saying it, um, we really consider ourselves a group of peacemakers. Um, we've tried to use that language and people don't always know what we mean, but we see this aid work and economic development work and all this through a a posture, and a lens that is a little bit different than some of our counterparts because we're always trying to design our work in such a way that that addresses the under uh, the the roots, the, the violence itself and the things that create violence and make for violence. So we make sure that Muslims and Christians are working side by side. We make sure that Sunni and Shia are working side by side. And, and we just design our programs and our teams in a way that, that we're trying to bring people together, not just deliver aid or just provide jobs.
0: Okay. That sounds like very, um, it's honorable, but it's also a very developed thesis. Like this is a, this is, this sounds like the result of a lot of thinking. I'm curious when preemptive love started, what was the idea or has this always been the idea, but, but what was the idea when it started and how has it evolved? Yeah, that's a great, great observation and great question we were not
1: this evolved when we started yeah um it it began really with me in iraq we'd moved into iraq in the middle of the iraq war uh hoping to just be present and hoping to be some kind of salve on the wounds of the iraqi people given what was going on in that time and I was sitting in a hotel working on my laptop and this guy approached me and asked me if I could help his cousin, this little girl who's yay big. And he said she's she was born with this life-threatening heart defect. And after all these decades of Saddam's dictatorship and U.N. sanctions and war, um, there's not a doctor or a hospital left in all of Iraq that can save her life. You're an American. You've clearly come here to help us can you help my family, help my little cousin? And as we jumped in with that family and tried to help them, we ended up being able to get her connected to the life-saving surgery that she needed. And more and more kids started coming out of the woodwork like her. And we kind of became this outpost of last resort for these kids who needed complex surgeries. And the standard aid interventions just weren't created for them. They, they were created for mass response. They were created for low-cost interventions. They weren't created for high-cost surgeries. And um, in the process of helping these kids, we ended up sending them to their mortal enemies. It wasn't the plan. It just happened. Like the enemy ended up being the one who could provide the surgery. And in, in the process of watching fathers and mothers make very difficult decisions, should I hand my child over to the enemy when the enemy claims they will save my child's life? We just got kind of sucked into this this vortex of what we now understand to be peacemaking. That that when you show up with with real tangible love, with real tangible solutions and services for people, um, some of the complexities actually go out the window, and and people are actually willing to walk toward one another when you give them a common ground across which they can walk. So we've endeavored to be that bridge now for the last eight or nine years, 10 years in Iraq, I guess it is now. Um, We want to be the bridge that people walk across to get to each other.
0: I I feel like people are listening to this and they're like, wait, 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 wait. (laughs) How'd you get to Iraq? The really catalytic moment for
1: me was September 11th, 2001. Uh. The, the attacks on New York City, attacks on D.C., the the whole conversation surrounding that, the fear I felt. It all happened just weeks, uh, I guess maybe a, a couple of months after we'd gotten married, a couple of months after we'd graduated from college. Our whole future is ahead of us, yet to be written, and our country is just suddenly very polarized over, over issues of national defense, over issues of religion, over terrorism, over patriotism. And we had some pastors and friends and community who helped, I think, steer our ship or turn our face just slightly in the direction of, of our Muslim friends and neighbors, just slightly helped us see them as people, not as uh, a mere political punching bag or or topic to be bandied about, you know, on cable news. And as much as we recognize them as people, and, and as much as we sought to know Muslims as real friends, it, it created this draw to actually land and then live in the Middle East, in and among Muslims, giving our lives to this conversation. You know, on September tenth, two 2001, no one was really talking about Islam. And mm-hmm since September 11th, now for the last 15 years, we haven't stopped talking about Islam any day of the week, it seems, uh, for 15 years.
0: I think what strikes me is a lot of the country, the whole country, it was a catalytic moment for, right? Like everybody, where were you on September 11th? And we were all, we all have this memory and this conversation, but not all of us end up where you are. And so I wonder if you just take me through the beats of you know, your pastor, as you said, kind of turning your face just a a little bit towards this community who is now uh, in so many ways being vilified. How do you get from that, that little kind of spark of realization, that catalytic moment to moving, moving your whole life, doing what you're doing? Yeah, there's a, you
1: know there's a a biblical story that has since become more of a biblical model or construct of this this character Saul of Tarsus who is the great persecutor of the church and the the early young christian community and Saul has this transformative experience of the risen Jesus and decides to become a follower of Jesus and becomes the great advocate and, and apostle of Christ for the growth of the church around the world. And I think that that story and then the, kind of the model that can be extrapolated from it was something that was brought into our community on September 11th. On that very day, we had friends and leaders who said, let's pray for this guy whose name we've probably never heard of before today, Osama bin Laden. He wants to persecute us. You know, the, a lot of the conversation was why do they hate our way of life? Why do they hate us? This kind of thing, um, and I think we really put ourselves, we put our, our, literally our community, we put our Christian identity, kind of at the center of the bullseye, which is a little different than I understand it now. But at that time, um, we we saw ourselves as persecuted, and we saw Osama bin Laden in the role of Saul, the persecutor, and if Saul could be changed by a, by an experience of Jesus, then maybe Osama bin Laden could be as well, and so let's pray for him. And it's it's amazing what the act of praying for someone does in your own heart, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the act of praying for this guy who was so much a part of our national conversation for the, the coming years, I think helped. That was one of the major transformative uh, moments. Um, from there, you know, it's really tiny steps. I think looking back now on this journey, 15 years into it, we've lived in Iraq itself for a decade and it, it can seem rather shocking, you know, in in the, that from the ashes of the the twin towers, some of this hope, some of this life-saving work, some of this peacemaking has emerged, but but it really is just one little step at a time, one little day at a time. We didn't, we didn't run from September 11th straight into the heart of Fallujah. We, we found ourselves just taking kind of one next step of faith, and so it was like trips to very easy to access, safe Muslim countries like Turkey, which were mind blowing for a lot of our friends at that time. Like that, that anyone would go to a Muslim country after 9/11 was was mind blowing for some people. And, and so what felt like a really big step at the time, I look back on now and, and realize, wow, that that just really wasn't that big of a deal. But, but at the time
0: it seemed like a big deal and, and so on and so forth, you know, I saw, I mean, I think you just tweeted it that, that you all were correct me if I'm wrong on this, cause I'm trying to remember a tweet, but you were feeding, um, members of ISIS. And is that accurate?
1: Yeah. So when you say it like that, that sounds a little, uh, inter- that sounds a little shocking to say me. It, even, say, but. It,
0: say it correctly. Say it the way I should <laughs> say it. Cause I, I, I'm not trying to be gotcha. I'm just struck by how, I mean, you and I have known each other for a long time and this is, I think the second or third time I've had the opportunity to interview you. And the first time it was about heart surgery. We were talking about kids getting heart surgery. And that was, uh, I felt like it was, uh, easy to wrap my, uh, my head around my heart around my philosophy around. Um, but as you've grown, you continue to push. I think, um, I think you push the envelope in a, in a really positive way of who is your neighbor and what, what, what person isn't your neighbor. And the answer I guess is, nobody i mean like everyone is our neighbor and so you continue to push that envelope um and so so explain to me how i should have asked that question about the tweet that i saw what were you doing and what was preemptive love doing to to love to love your neighbor
1: no i think you asked it right you summed it up correctly it just um it, it it just reminds me that i i still can be shocked some of this stuff like even as I try to push us forward and and lead us into some of these things I'm not I'm not there yet you know I still get shocked by by some of the claims of love on our life Uh, we have in fact fed ISIS members now in this case they were they were ISIS criminals known ISIS convicts murderers who were internet famous here in Iraq for some of the the murder videos that they've put out, the macabre war propaganda that they've put out, and our work on the front lines in Fallujah had us running toward the conflict as everyone else was running away. We were the only organization, uh, international organization in the entire world to work inside the Fallujah militarized zone, uh, as far as we have been told. And we started... I mean, one of the things that we noticed across the board in our work in Fallujah as the town was being liberated from ISIS control is where are all the men? And the men were being rounded up one by one by one and passed through these security protocols. And known convicts were getting put in a certain area and um, suspects were getting put in another area. And if you made it through the rigorous screening process and could come out without any kind of suspicion whatsoever, uh, then you might be allowed to go live in a tent in the 130 degree heat in the desert. So the, the makeshift prison camps were filling up fairly quickly with men over the age of 12. And we started asking questions about how these men were being treated. Uh, you know, the camps weren't being fed. We were one of the largest providers of food and water and and non-food items in this, this emergency. And we figured if the thing out here for civilians is so bad, how much worse might it be for the prisoners of war? And so we just started making these inquiries of the Ministry of Interior and, and the media and some others, the militia. And we ultimately kind of wowed or surprised some of the powers that be when we suggested, well, we, we would feed them. If, if you can't feed them and you would allow us, then we would feed them. And the militia leaders in the Ministry of Interior were astounded that, that we would want to do this. And I, I mean, I, I can understand their perspective, but it, more than anything, it just wasn't something that anyone else was apparently asking. And, and these thousands and thousands of men we're, we're being kind of scuttled off into the shadows, and I mean it 's a known fact all over the world. One of the best ways to radicalize anyone, whether you 're talking about Islamist radicalization or gang membership or anything like that, is throw them in a prison yard together and and treat them like animals and you 're guaranteed to radicalize more of these guys and we just wanted to do whatever we could to disrupt the system and And for a moment, help humanize this situation. And so we showed up with a bunch of food and fresh underwear and fresh clothes and toothbrushes and and, uh, did our best to just treat these guys like brothers. Um, A lot of them were probably innocent and had just got caught up in the net. A lot of them were probably under suspicion for good reason and will go on to be convicted. And some of them were just patently, obviously ISIS guys because of, I mean, we just, we knew them from the videos and stuff that go around. So um, led by one of our Muslim team leaders, actually, he he showed up on the scene and said, in reference to a, a very specific video where these ISIS guys had beheaded his friend, he said, you killed my friend. I'm here to feed you. And some of these ISIS guys were in like handcuffs and he he like just very gently and compassionately opened a bottle of water and and gave them drink they they couldn't use their couldn't use their own hands and you know, this was not at our instruction this was not like jeremy the pure christian telling our my muslim staff what to do this was this was really born out of their own heart and out of their own love and their own character and, and so this, this idea of loving your enemies, this idea of crossing enemy lines is something that we didn't come up with, but we're, we're committed to continue to live into. And sometimes we're leading the way. Sometimes our Muslim staff is leading the way, but we, we continue to learn from each other and grow together.
0: That is where we will pause this week, because I think it is enough for us, and for me at least Not just to think about if I would love my enemies, because that's hard enough to love your enemies, but would I also give them water? Do I love them that much? Would I even go into the places where they live? I've said this before, I hope I would. Anyhow. If you would like to learn more about Preemptive Love, go to preemptivelove.org. If you want to chat with Jeremy, he is quite active on Twitter, at jcourt is his Twitter bio. And of course, all of this information, as well as every link that I talk about during the show, is available on our episode page, newactivist.is, newactivist.is. And we are also on social media. Both Facebook and Twitter are both newactivistis the new activist is presented by international justice mission ijm is working to end slavery in our lifetime and won't stop until all are free if you would like to learn more about the work of IJM, and if you would like to join with us in that work, go to ijm.org forward slash careers. It's actually a really informative webpage for what it's worth. It's got uh, just a lot of great information about how we do, what we do. Um, but also, the career section is wonderful because we are looking for folks, people just like you, to help us in ending slavery. The music for today's show was composed by Ether. You can hear more of his music at soundcloud.com forward slash ether. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of my colleagues at International Justice Mission, as well as Jeremy Courtney, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends.